0: It's a joyous morning to come together, isn't it? To give thought to the blessing that God has surrounded us with, and oh, how abundant they truly are. Paul, in the opening stanza of the Ephesian letter, spoke about the great number of blessings lavished upon those who are the children of God, and can't you and I say a hearty amen to that today. It is the case, as we come to this portion of our worship, we have already joyously sang and lifted our voices together in praise and adoration of God, We've prayed together, and certainly we've enjoyed the fellowship of being able to assemble. But as we wish to continue our worship, we'd like to devote a few moments to a consideration, a study of a section of the Word of God, the extent of God's forgiveness. That's the title I chose for the lesson, and we'll use a fair reference to Second Chronicles chapter 33. In just a moment, as we develop that somewhat more thoroughly, I hope that we'll each leave today with a renewed excitement, with a renewed appreciation to just how excited our God is to forgive those who will approach Him. And so it is this morning, these introductory thoughts I hope will set us on a course to complete that desire. Don't you suppose it's interesting to think of how often the subject of forgiveness from God is a part of what we hear about in the world around us? There are so many who, in fact, will attach to this subject and make some statement with respect to it. But the the statements on that particular slide leave you and me still a bit bewildered. I think as we study the Bible, we are again reminded of just how great our God is at forgiveness. Let's study that together this morning. To do that, from the bottom of that slide, you'll notice there's a Bible character I would ask you to consider. A gentleman, a man who did live upon this earth. He's not a figment of anybody's imagination. He literally lived on this planet. And yet the forgiveness extended to him should prompt you and me to think amazingly about how our God wants to forgive. In 2 Chronicles, chapters 33 and following, the Old Testament writer takes us back to a story, a record of a gentleman named Manasseh. I call him a gentleman, but quite frankly, from the perspective of those who love the Lord, there's much about this man's life that you and I would hate. There's many things that he upheld and pursued that you and I would quickly say is wrong. Let's first of all appreciate the context, and as we're often in a position to do, upon that then we'll draw some lessons from it. I've tried to present very briefly some notes. In 1 Kings, chapters 11 and following, remember that the United Kingdom of Israel split. Ten of the tribes were not interested in following Rehoboam. And as they, in fact, chose to go their own way, they followed Jeroboam. And therefore, there came to be two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, consisting of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, having only two. As you think then about the certain course thereafter, The twelfth king of that southern kingdom was a man named Hezekiah. You and I remember much about that gentleman in the Old Testament Bible. In particular, not only might you appreciate the fact he was a good king, but the time was he became sick. The sickness was serious and God told him, set your house in order, you're going to die and not live. He prayed to God intently and God said, 15 more years I'll give you. So here was that rememberable scene in which Hezekiah was granted 15 additional years. As you'll notice rather quickly, in the third year though of those 15 years, he had a child born to him. The boy's name was Manasseh. Now at this morning's lesson, will by and large consider Manasseh. And so in brevity, might you notice the following... Of course, 12 years later, Hezekiah died just like God told him he would. Fifteen years is all you got. And so when the 15 years was up, he passed on. And yet Manasseh, who was only 12 years of old at the time, became the next king of Israel. Ponder, if you will, for a moment. Here's a 12-year-old boy sitting on the throne of Judah. He became the next king. Now, without doubt, he had a circle of advisors, and there were individuals who could give him advice and counsel, but the fact remains, he was the king. As the slide proceeds onward, the Bible does not present anything except these thoughts. Manasseh did what was evil. He did what was evil. He pursued what was not right. He didn't, it seems, learn a great deal from his daddy, Hezekiah. He chose to do what was idolatrous. He chose to do what was improper and wrong. He chose to pursue that with all the earnestness and all the vigor that was within him. In particular, could I ask you to notice just a few of the sins the Old Testament tells us about Manasseh. First of all, he pursued abundantly the matter of idolatry. He had shrines and idolatrous altars built in all sorts of places, and he seems to be vigorous in pursuit of it. Not only was he interested in it, he wanted other people to be idolatrous as well. Not only that, he actually committed what appears from the Old Testament writer to be overt sacrilege. May I ask you a question? Of all the places that Manasseh could have had an idolatrous shrine and altar built, where do you suppose would have been the worst place to put one from the perspective of God? What if I build it right in the temple? Now you and I know that that temple was the place God put His name. First Kings 9 verse 3. It was the place wherein, of course, there was the most holy place and the mercy seat and the various furnishings and features. And right there in the outskirts of that temple complex, Manasseh had some idolater shrines built. What blasphemous activity that is at all. Let's continue our listing like this. He committed murder. Now, you might ask how he did this. Remember, he had arrived at the point of being king in the interest of pursuing these various idols. He commanded that children amongst Judah be sacrificed to them. So he actually gave approval governmentally to the murder of little boys and girls. You and I, would of course, recoil at the thought of that, but Manasseh did it. Let's continue our list. Verse 6 of 2 Chronicles 33 says, He involved Himself in witchcraft. He was interested in trying to make reference to the matters touching the dead, communicating with them, learning things from them. He overtly gave Himself to the pursuit of witchcraft. The list goes on. I mentioned a moment ago, He built some idolatrous shrines and altars in the outskirts of the temple complex. The matter now, it seems to me, gets even worse. He actually had an altar built in the temple proper. Imagine again those sacred places in the the holy place. Manasseh had an altar built to some god other than the God of heaven. It would seem to me that there wouldn't be much more blasphemous that a person could do than this. As you come to the bottom of that slide, or rather the last point in that section of it, He was greatly encouraging of other people to engage in all these things too. Witchcraft, murder, the various characteristics of idolatry. By now, our impression of Manasseh is fairly complete. No wonder the Bible says he did what was abominable before God. He pursued what was evil. However, the fact remains, God sent messengers to Him as well as to the southern kingdom of Judah, urging them to repent, urging them to change, reminding them of the fact that there was a God of heaven whom they had ignored and neglected. God sent messengers. But you'll notice rather quickly how that statement ends in verse 10. They gave no heed. They didn't pay any attention to the messengers God sent. They didn't give any indication that they were interested in making any changes. Manasseh and the people seemed rather happy with the way things were. It might well be then the next several statements on that slide teach us a dramatic lesson indeed. After the people rejected God's messengers, the text says God sent the Assyrians... Here was a foreign nation now that God brought upon Manasseh and upon the southern kingdom. And of course, they hauled away Manasseh captive. Here was that man who had been king of Judah. And the text says he was bound, he was in affliction, and he found himself in a foreign place because of the sins he'd committed. Isn't it impressive then to note the lesson text that was read a moment ago? You see, the Assyrians didn't kill him. They bound him. They incarcerated him. They put him in jail, if you please. And although life was no doubt very hard and difficult, they didn't take an end to his life. But the text says that Manasseh humbled himself, he prayed. He finally realized the error of his way. And the text says God restored him to the king of Judah. Isn't that amazing? This man who had wrought so much evil, this man who had involved himself in what was so against the law of God, and yet he came to his own senses. In that humility and in that pursuit to God, God restored him to the kingship. Now as we close that slide, we might notice there are a number of things stated as that chapter goes on about how Matters in his life were different after he was restored. He tried to do what was right. He insisted amongst the people that they do what was right. But sadly enough, the text informs us the people didn't always listen very well. They remembered too much what had happened before. Well, that is a basic guideline of the historical setting. Let's now draw several lessons out of it and make application to our life today. As we learn in our Bible class this morning, our interest is to rightly divide the word of truth. Lesson number one. Did you notice that when Manasseh was involved in that evil, he was religious, but he was religiously wrong. And a valiant lesson to be noted instantly is this. Being religious doesn't make anybody saved. It doesn't make anybody in the right relationship with God. Being religious isn't nearly enough. Isn't the New Testament filled with verses that remind us of that truth and that point? It's easy to be religious, but God demands a lot more than that. Look with me, for instance, at some statements that you'll notice on that slide. To your attention, might I call Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, there said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many shall say unto me, Jesus said in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name did many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Notice, there were religious people. They even referred to the master's lord. They even declared, "We've cast out devils in your name." And Jesus says, "I never knew you." I don't know what name you thought you were using. I don't know what in- intent you thought you had, but it wasn't according to truth. Being religious isn't enough to save anybody. What we have to appreciate is Manasseh was religious, but he was religiously wrong. Aren't you and I thankful that the truth has been revealed? And we can appreciate that which is the true Word of God and be those who subscribe solely and only to that. You may notice in addition that passage in Acts 17 verses 16 and following. Again, we'll not read nearly all of that, but notice when Paul there came to the city of Athens and he saw shrines and altars erected to any number of supposed deities... And the text says, Paul's spirit was stirred within him. Why was he so agitated and bothered? In fact, Paul was so stirred because the idolatry was wrong. They were religious, but they were just religiously wrong. Paul began to preach to them about that God they call the unknown God. He's the one I want to tell you about. You're too superstitious, he said. May you and I today recognize... We must be far more than just religious. We've got to be religiously right. And that requires that we appreciate the things set forth in the Word of God and, of course, to follow, follow it wholly. Lesson number two. In addition to this, might we appreciate almost immediately that one of the evils listed concerning Manasseh. Remember, several things were listed. Murder, the killing of little babies... Now notice here, it was acclaimed on the basis of religious activity. Didn't change the fact God said it was wrong. Murder's always wrong. Wasn't it true in the Ten Commandments? The Sixth Commandment was, Thou shalt not commit murder. The King James reads it, Thou shalt not kill. How much plainer could that have been? Now certainly we realize that in light of a passage like that one, that's carried over into the New Testament. And we know that even Jesus subscribed to that when He was asked about the nature of what was, Im- what was pertinent. He said, don't kill. We read that, of course, in Matthew 19. Later, we notice in Romans chapter 13, Paul highlighted, of course, something very similar. When you and I reflect upon those things, doesn't that challenge us to think about this? The New Testament heightens that understanding. I can be very displeasing to God, And I don't have to take out a gun and shoot somebody. What if I hate a man? 1 John chapter 4 says that if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. You have done that which is against the law and will of God. You and I as Christians are commanded by the God of heaven to be motivated with the kind of love God has. God wants all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. Isn't it true? then that we have to look very closely inside. Do I have hatred? Do I bear grudges and wish evil upon others? May you and I put those kind of thoughts away from us and be motivated as the Master was. Even those who who took His own life, He had a desire that they might be saved. Maybe in fairness, as we've thought about those two particular examples, What about some additional truths? What else might we learn from Manasseh? Lesson number three. Would you ponder with me a moment about another one of the sins listed concerning Manasseh? Isn't it rather fascinating that we can easily understand murder and how wrong that is. We can easily understand perhaps the circumstances surrounding idolatry. But what about witchcraft? The chronicler has pointed out rather clearly, this was something for which Manasseh was judged by God as being evil. What was it about witchcraft? That had been condemned since the days even of the book of Leviticus. They had been told not to engage in this. I mention that for the following reason. You and I know that that particular avenue and pursuit of life is still rather pertinent. There are many who find an interest in it. They will read the astrological tables and they'll have their palms read and they'll go to a tarot card reader. They may, in fact, have usage of a Ouija board or otherwise. Maybe there's more witchcraft going on in our world today than we'd like to admit. But as children of God, we must be very careful. In fact, might we ask, although Manasseh was judged by God for this as being evil, what does the New Testament have to say? Does God still condemn this? It does. Could I direct your attention, for instance, to Revelation 21.8? An extensive listing is given. Who is going to be sent to hell? Now, we know liars are amongst that group and those who otherwise have disobeyed the God of heaven. But please note in that list are sorcerers. Now, tell me who is a sorcerer? It's those guilty witchcraft. And that's in the heart of the New Testament, isn't it? Furthermore, what about Galatians 5, verses 19 and following? Amongst those works of the flesh, and we know there are many of them. Adultery and fornication, lasciviousness and others. Sorcery is amongst that list too. And Paul rather quickly said, these will not be entered into heaven. May I invite all of us then to think with care. And although there may be temptations from others and neighbors and friends to pursue these things, let us as children of God and as those who are interested in being given to the matters of God, may we not enter into them. To put the matter rather bluntly, all those things are an effort to learn something about the future or something in relation to the dead. And the fact is, only God has access to that information. Man doesn't know the future, Mark thirteen thirty-two. Only God does, Isaiah 46, 9. And when it comes to matters of the dead, all of us are heading in that direction, but it's not our purview at this point to communicate with it. Isn't it so? In Luke 16, Jesus rather dr- dramatically said, In regard to that rich man and Lazarus, both of whom he had passed away, In regard to that which was taking place on earth, they've got Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. You can't go back and I'm not sending anybody back. Witchcraft is still wrong. Lesson number four. As we come to the bottom of that slide, perhaps it's time to revisit for a moment what was it that befell Manasseh. Although he was only twelve when he came to the throne. He chose to pursue many things that were evil. And we've just listed them today. And God sent messengers, but He had no heed. Ultimately, that meant this. God's long-suffering nature ran out on Him. And the time came, God brought the Assyrians against Him and hauled Him off into captivity. Doesn't that teach us a valiant thought about the wages of sin? Oh, how God is long-suffering, but there does come a point when that long-suffering character will have been exceeded. If for no other reason, when the time comes that you and I pass away and we die, and there's no longer any chance then to make it right. We've died outside the Lord. We've died lost, and there's no changing it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. Manasseh teaches us about this. Here in this life, God may beckon and invite and implore and beseech and call, but He always lets me make the final decision. What if I continue to refuse? His long-suffering nature will run out at some point for me. What a tragedy. May all of us then think seriously and never allow our heart to become hardened by sin but always to remain tender and willing earnestly and quickly to make things right. Because we would never want to become hard to the point that like Manasseh, we have to suffer so mightily for the matters of what we've done. The wages of sins' death. James states it like this in James 1 beginning in verse 13, "...let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil." Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Point number four then has been a reminder that one cannot sin against God with impunity. You can't sin and just expect Him to ignore it, to overlook it or neglect it. That won't happen. Oh, it's true that the wicked may enjoy prosperity here on earth for a little season, but it's not a lasting and it's not genuine. Point number five. After the thoughts about the wages of Manasseh's sin, aren't you impressed? Shouldn't we all be impressed? As we give thought to verse number 12. In the midst of this foreign place, The text says this, And when he was in affliction, please be impressed that Manasseh didn't have it just cozily and nicely. Though a king he had been, he was in affliction. But it does say he besought the Lord. He came to his senses finally. The text doesn't say, But one can't help but wonder, given he had previously been so idolatrous... Could it be then, while he was in that foreign prison, he made all kinds of appeals to various other gods like Baal or otherwise, but he had had no answer? Because of course those gods don't exist. But he finally recognized. Do you suppose at some point he wondered, I remember what daddy did. Hezekiah, that good king who tried to pursue the things of God, maybe I'll try that too. And he besought the Lord. The text says with emphasis, he besought the Lord. And it says he humbled himself. That's another rather great lesson for all of us, isn't it? My remarks are relatively brief. But the text indicates this was a genuine movement of Manasseh's heart. He wasn't just doing this for show. He wasn't just doing this because someone else thought he should. He honestly made a movement. To, be, to, to seek after God. And you'll notice he humbled himself. It's an integral thing always, isn't it, to have a proper spirit of humility. God, in fact, hates those who are proud. We read in Proverbs chapter 6 of seven things that God hates. Contained at least twice in that list are things like a proud heart a look that's condescending in regard to this matter of arrogance. God hates that. Here we appreciate Manasseh humbled himself. All that evil he had done. He now came to to grips with that particular fact and he humbled himself before the God of heaven. Doesn't it remind us that all throughout the Bible is required by God? In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Question, in order to be healed, what first did they have to do? They had to humble themselves and seek God. Manasseh was doing that. The psalmist so often brings that thought before us, and I've listed several verses In the 119th Psalm, perhaps it's fair then for us to reflect for a moment, what about you and me today? How vital it is that though I or you might be given to sin, we must never remain in it. But rather to appreciate we have to humble ourselves, admit that God's right and I'm not, and to pursue His way because that's always the way that's right. I suppose it's easy, isn't it, to try and justify myself, to excuse my own disobedience, to rationalize it, but that didn't work, didn't work for Manasseh, and it won't work now. We have to appreciate the reality of godly sorrow that brings about repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. One final thought in that. Wasn't it true that John the Baptist even understood this truth so valiantly? In Matthew 3, verse 8, He admonished those of His day. They had come to hear His preaching, but He said, Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. You've got to have a genuine response to God. It cannot simply be surface deep. What about you and me today? May we appreciate that Manasseh teaches us a great deal. Lesson 6. The consequences of repentance... I list this one because the Old Testament passage seems to do so so very strongly. Remember that after Manasseh had repented and after he had turned back to God, God blessed him by making him again king of Judah. And when he came back to the throne, he began to pursue what was right. And that meant tearing down a lot of those idols he had built not many years before. And it meant trying to change the movement and hearts of individuals, but they were so steeped in sin... They were so given to what they had seen done before, He had a hard time changing them. In many instances, they were still given to the high places and offering to idols and sacrifices. And the text emphasizes how that must have hurt the very mind of this one who had repented so much. That brings us again to notice the consequences of sin. Isn't it true that there are times in your life and mine when We have pursued the way that's wrong, and yet when we realize it and turn to God, we have sowed so many seeds that others aren't so easily convinced that we were wrong before. They still want to do what they saw us do previously when we were in sin. That can be hard. The temptations are still there. They want us to continue to do what we were before, but we can't do that because we're now children of God. Manasseh, it seems, was so motivated to try to do what was right, but the forces were so strongly against him, prompted primarily by what he had done earlier in life. May I ask that we all think seriously before sowing any wild oats. Think about what kind of crop they're going to bring. They may not bring forth tomorrow, Even next week or next year, it may be 10 or 15 years from now, but when it does, oh, what hardship it'll bring. Wild oats don't ever bring out about anything good. The thing that we must do is live in light of what Manasseh should have been doing all along. Convicted and devoted to God, dedicated to Him because His way is always right. The consequences of sin are very strong indeed. In Luke 15, verses 10 and following, the record is given to you and me about the one we call the prodigal son. Here was one who had, of course, a great inheritance coming his way. And he demanded Daddy for it. I want it now. And Daddy gave it to him. But the text quickly informs us he went off and wasted it in riotous living. He didn't use it wisely. He wasted it. And that's what the word prodigal means. Think about some of the things that he did. He was with harlots, and we know that's not good. And here he was, so low, he was ready to, in fact, avail himself of feeding swine. And he was so hungry, he even had some interest in what they were eating. But he came to himself. They in the Father's house have got bread to spare, and I'm starving. My daddy was a loving one in that He provided and took care of me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and tell Dad, I've sinned in your sight and before God. I'm not worthy to be called your son any longer. Doesn't that highlight for us? Think about the later consequences of what those sins might have been. If he'd been with harlots, you think he may have had a venereal disease. If he'd been with harlots, was he afflicted in some other way? The text doesn't say. But in that parable, you and I in our modern day could wonder any number of things. Fact is, sometimes our sins can have serious consequences. We'll live with them the rest of our days. It's vital then to think about the urgency of sin now and to not do it. Perhaps if it is for that reason, let's close that slide by remembering Paul. In Acts 9, verses 26 and following, Paul was one, remember, who had been a strong persecutor of the church. He had, in fact, imprisoned those that were Christians in Acts chapter 9. And when the time came that he was baptized, what was the immediate reaction of the church toward him? That man persecuted us. They didn't want anything to do with him. We can understand that, can't we? You see, our sins may have consequences... Even though God has forgiven us, it may be awfully hard to go about carrying out the changes that we would wish. Manasseh found it that way. Lesson 7 is our last one of the day. It was the title of the lesson, and it is a wonderful consideration. Would you paint the following picture with me? Here was Manasseh, again, this individual who had wrought so much evil from idolatry to murder, witchcraft, any number of sins encouraging others to do evil as well. And yet, when he besought the Lord in humility, God forgave him. God forgave him. Aren't you amazed at the extent of God's forgiveness? If God can forgive a man like Manasseh, He can forgive you. He can forgive me. But what's required of us is to, in pattern, in principle, do what Manasseh did. You have to seek the Lord, and you have to humble yourself before Him and say, God, what will you have me to do? I'm not trying to usurp what I want. Tell me what you'll have me to do. Paul said that in Acts 9, 6. Isaiah affirmed it in Isaiah 6, 8. Samuel had declared it in 1 Samuel 3, 9. Lord, what will you have me to do? To have our sins washed away, he says, you've got to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. You've got to repent of those sins. And again, that can't be just a surface matter. Are you genuinely sorry for what you did? Realizing it was an affront to God, it violated His will. And make a determined intent not to do that again. At that point, as an alien sinner, you make confession of the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. And of course, you're then immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. As one, though, who has become a Christian, we may still err and commit sin, but those same first two still need to be valiant. We have to come to realize that we've made our mistakes and sins and errors and never exalt ourselves above the will of God. But again, God, what will you have me to do? On that very verse, God commands that we must repent. When we've erred, even as a Christian, we have to repent. We have to come back to Him. And in so doing, we make confession of those errors. First John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. Those passages remind us, If any man say, I have no sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But rather, the next verse goes on to say, but when we confess those things, He is faithful and just to forgive them. As a Christian, may we never be arrogant or haughty, understanding that we're going to attempt to exalt our will above God, for that's eternally dangerous. But rather in humility, just like Manasseh, return to God and whatever that sin has been, God has promised to forgive it. The extent of forgiveness that God extended to Manasseh is a great lesson for us. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. He paid the price for your sins and mine at the cross. We must dutifully come to Him in the way that He says, and every single sin can and will be forgiven. But just like Manasseh, it's left to us. If we won't come to God, then He won't forgive it. But if we will, how sweet it is to think of the extent of God's forgiveness. We close that slide by noting a number of poetic references in the Bible. And we'll close the sermon with them. Listen to some of the ways that God forgives as He talks about what He does to the sins that you and I have committed. In Psalm 103, verse 12, when a person approaches God rightly, he takes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Micah 7, verse 19, when a person rightfully comes to God, he takes that person's iniquities and casts them into the depths of the sea. Isn't that a beautiful thought? In Isaiah 43, 25, When a person comes to God with proper repentance, approaching him in the way that he should, God remembers those iniquities no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. As Jeremiah made that prophecy about the coming gospel era, he foretold a time when God says, I will remember their sins and their iniquities no more. And that's quoted verbatim in Hebrews 8, verse 12. That shows us about the extent of our God's forgiveness, doesn't it? Have you come to Him today? Have you approached that great God? Whatever your sins may have been, He will forgive them. There is no sin greater than the blood of Jesus Christ. As you and I think then about that extent of His forgiveness, I may summarize the lesson in some of these closing ways. These are the things we've learned from a study of Manasseh. We saw, in particular, about religious error. We highlighted along the way the truth about the sins of witchcraft and murder. We came to see along that same line the fact that sins, wages are always death. In the next place, we highlighted the truth surrounding what is required to come to God because Manasseh highlighted the humility and repentance. Finally, we came to see that the consequences indeed were God's forgiveness, and how extensive it is. Today, if there would be one or more in this audience that is separated from God by sins, known publicly or even privately, you need to make things right. You don't know when this day will be, when the day of your demise will occur, when the Lord Jesus shall return. But you know that if you die in that current condition, you're lost forever. Forever. If things are of a public nature, this congregation, by virtue of James 5.16, is being given responsibility to pray to God on your behalf, and that will do. If we can pray in that regard, please come today. If you are one who's never become a Christian, realize that the blood of Jesus is ready to cleanse. You need to follow that plan that's been set before us today. If we could be of assistance, of help in any way this morning, We would urge you to come. We would insist that you do because the Lord does and to do it at once while together we stand and sing.